Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. So welcome back to the Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast. I'm Nicholas Carman, your host. And this evening, I'm joined by Claire Hebbs, Director of Development at London Legacy Development Corporation. Now, Claire's responsible for the delivery of over 2,500 homes. And during Claire's 20 years experience, she's worked for some of the most significant urban regenerators within central London. Prominent names such as Argent for the redevelopment of King's Cross, Batsy Power Station and Lendlease Elephant Park. So Claire, thank you very much for joining me. No, it's, you're very welcome. It's um, an interesting process to go to look back. So let's get started. You kick us off. How does Chapter One begin? I think for me, Chapter One um, can only really begin at school. And, you know, all those terrible careers conferences you end up going to um, and having to tell people what it is you're interested in. And for me, I was very clear that I was um, interested in the physical world, although I didn't really know how to articulate that. Um, I definitely liked doing things, um, and I was pretty clear I didn't want to be just at a desk. Probably my overriding aim, though, was to um, very deliberately not conform to stereotypes. Um, and bearing in mind, this was a very a very normal school, and this was 30 years ago. Um, the idea of a girl doing engineering wasn't really on the list. Um, and so that immediately attracted me. And so given that I was pretty good at maths and physics, I decided I would go for engineering. And so I did I did do quite a lot of research, actually, into engineering and picked civil engineering, largely because anything to do with electricity scares me witless. Um, and I really wasn't interested in cars. So I spent a lot of time looking at courses and ended up choosing a course at Imperial to do civil engineering. Um, but probably the key decision I made at that point, which again was breaking the mould a little bit um, from, certainly from the perspective of my school, was to take a year out um, and get sponsorship and also a scholarship um, through so that I could get some experience, get some money um, before I even started at university. Well, I look forward to hearing if you uh, remain to be quite so contrary as well as, the, uh, as this sort of story goes on. Post that uh, sort of year out, what happens next? So the year out was with a company called Travis Morgan, um, who were a, it's an infrastructure company, roads, bridges, that kind of thing. And they sponsored me. So I went to Imperial. It was a four year course at Imperial. Um, I did three of those years. And then in September of the fourth year, slightly unbeknown to me, I wasn't I was slightly naive about this kind of thing. Um, Travis Morgan went into administration. And I remember sitting in my um, university house getting the letter that should have been my sponsorship check for the year um, and the letter basically said mm, we've gone into administration there's no money so that was probably my first um, my first kind of foray into the real world of, of adulthood almost so I went and spoke to my tutor um, who happened to be the president of the Institution of Civil Engineers at the time um, he rang one of his mates 
and he got me an interview with um, one of the directors at Arup. Um, so I remember, you know, finding my digging out my smartest clothes at university, going for this interview, um, and very happily, um, Arup then agreed to sponsor me for the final year of my university course, um, but also really importantly, give me summer holiday work and and that kind of thing. So possibly a sort of a tricky sort of start, but you went you 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 have a really good sort of stint at Arup, don't you, from ninety six to two thousand and two. Tell us a, a bit of in mind about sort of what you were particularly sort of learning at that stage. Yeah, so I was I was really just on the um, the standard Arab graduate program, which I had to say was great. Um, I had I did a year on site. Um, I did some work in Hong Kong, um, which was fabulous experience, and I, I just was just working through to becoming a chartered engineer. After I'd done a couple of years and kind of got over the initial excitement of um, starting work and having a proper job, that kind of thing, it became really clear that my dislike of detail was very much going to get in the way of being an engineer. And I have this distinct memory of working with an architect who halfway through a project decided that they, instead of having normal standard steel beams um, for the structure, they didn't want the curved edges that you would get with that. And so they wanted to fabricate every single beam, Um, which meant basically as a structural engineer, I had to redo everything I'd already done. Um, And I remember sitting there thinking, I just really don't care about this. And that was the beginning of my kind of internal conversation of saying, well, if this isn't what I want to do, what do I want to do? And at the same time, I was aware I was working on some really interesting projects, but I was working with clients who seemed to me as a graduate engineer to make some really, really strange decisions. And so... I suppose probably slightly on that contrary side, I decided I could clearly do better. Um, and and so I started to explore the options of, of working um, more client side. Um, and and probably the first step of that was with Arup. Um, and I went to go and work as a design manager on the control tower at Heathrow Terminal 5, um, which was a great project and, and very much my first step out of pure engineering into a kind of broader management role. So that gives us a really good sort of understanding. And I think we're sort of learning now about sort of, you know, one about your sort of contrary nature, about sort of wanting to go sort of uh, engineering. But by the sound of things, maybe sort of the reality isn't, wasn't all that it was maybe sort of you, you thought it might have been. At what point did you think then that you were going to make that change? And, and what change was that? So I think even at the point where I went to go and work at Terminal 5, I knew that that was simply a stopgap. And I'd been looking pretty seriously at, at leaving Arup um, and going and doing something different. I quite honestly wasn't quite sure about how to go and do that. And so I'd spoken to a few people. There's a few opportunities I'd had just to speak to different organisations which had just come along. And so none of those had actually come to fruition. I think it was pretty clear within Arup that I was going to leave, um, I'd clearly shown signs of frustration and people had picked that up. And actually I was recommended by somebody within Arup to one of the guys I've worked with previously at Argent. And in the kind of time-honoured fashion, they approached me and asked whether I wanted to come and talk to them about a potential role at King's Cross, um, which of course um, I was desperately keen to do. 
Now, obviously, everyone knows Argent. Everyone knows King's Cross now. But this was 2002, or even maybe earlier, if, if you hadn't if you hadn't quite started. Um, just for, for, for those listening now, just gives a bit of a sense check in terms of sort of, you know, who was Argent, how many people was it, and sort of how early a phase was, was King's Cross at that stage? Yeah, it was really different um, at Argent at that point. And in fact, I remember going for the interviews. I had something like seven interviews um, for Argent because it was a small company and everybody had to be sure that you fitted in. And so I just needed to talk to all of these people at different times so they could all become comfortable that that I would fit. Um, and, I, and from my perspective, it felt like an incredibly brave move. Um, I mean, Argent as a total was probably about 30 people. It was in an office above it shed in Piccadilly. It was actually a lovely office. Um, but uh, uh, sorry, not above a shed. Above it was an office above a shop um, in Piccadilly. And um, it felt like a really brave move, having been in a very stable organization like Arab, to suddenly go work for this slightly fly by night almost it felt um, developer, whose main job was actually in Birmingham. Um, at this point um, Argent was doing Brindley Place. And King's Cross was very much in its infancy as a project. And there was no guarantee it was actually going to go ahead. And so I remember sitting, talking to my husband about it and saying, Do we, you know, are we are we brave enough to make this move? Because I was I was the main earner at that point. And obviously I decided to do it, have a go. I knew I couldn't stay at Arup. And so I in my eyes I threw caution to the wind and, and joined Argent. Well, don't leave us in suspense. Uh, tell, us, tell us how those early years went. So I'd obviously come from an engineering and a design background. And at, the, at that time, there were four of us working on King's Cross. Um, so there's Robert Evans, Andre Gibbs, um, myself, and of course, um, Roger. And um, so the job I was given was anything to do with design and master planning. Um, I'd obviously never done master planning before. Um, luckily, we had an amazing team on board. So we had um, Allies and Morrison, Porphyrius and um, Robert Townsend was there. And I had almost weekly meetings um, that actually had Bob Allies, Graham Morrison, Dimitri Porphyrius and Robert Townsend in them. And they were incredibly tolerant, very kind. Um, and I effectively got a three-year masterclass in urban regeneration and, and master planning from them whilst at the same time watching how Argent did, was doing Brindley Place um, and learning from everybody, um, Peter Freeman was involved as well, uh, how you actually built the master planning and the development side together. Um, so it was very much sink or swim um, there. It was, you had to roll up your sleeves and get on with things, but it was a phenomenal experience, incredibly intense, um, but but yeah, completely um I, I, you know, clearly I will never have that experience again. An awful lot of fun. I was also the first professional woman that they'd ever employed. Um, so it's probably quite a big shock for them. And then as we submitted the planning application for King's Cross for the first time, was also the point that I became the first professional woman to go on maternity leave and for them. So I was stretching the boundaries um, for them at that time, I suspect. Argent, as we as we know know today, has has sort of built a business around bringing in very very bright, often technically qualified engineers, architects, 
but at, at a stage that their peers would never consider recruiting at. And by, by that, I mean recruiting people who've got maybe sort of as little as sort of three, four or five years experience you know, within a technical discipline and then bringing them straight into a, into a development management or a project management role. And, and that, is, that is quite unique. Now, it sounds like you sort of you were, you were the, um, the first one to go, to go through that. What would, you, what would you say is the, maybe the special source about how, how Argent made that work? I, don't, I definitely don't think I was the first, I have to say. Um, probably Roger was the first. Um, I don't think he was. There, there was this, uh, there's a long, or there was a long running joke about 27 and 28 year olds, um, which, which pretty much conforms to what you've just um, commented on. Um, I suspect Roger was the first, um, and Andre certainly came from the same background as well, and um, w- was there before me. Um, so I think I was I was treading what was probably a well-established path, and the only added challenge um, from their perspective was that I couldn't use the men's changing room, and and obviously you know five six years later um, I went on to go go and have children. Um, but certainly it was yeah it, it was a it was an environment where um it was very fast moving and there was lots of debate and you were expected to hold your own but the rewards for that was were, were that you could get involved in anything you wanted to almost so if i look back then claire you spent nearly 13 years with argent and given yeah given the the theory behind this pod about uh, people's careers going in waves, though they're accelerating, learning, developing really quickly, and then that has a habit of slowing, and there's a period of consolidation, followed then by a period of spark. Did you have a period of 13 years of steep learning, or did that also break down into, into chapters within the stint of Argent? Yeah, it's an interesting um, thought process, actually. I think, for me, the, the, um, the, the 12, 13 years I spent at Argent is is broken down into three clear chunks and i have to say that they are for me demarcated by having children i had a period of of time where it was incredibly steep learning curve both learning about development but the master planning and the project itself was really really intense and that was in the lead up to ha- having my first child and then there was a period of a couple of years um, between children, where um, I went back to work, I was personally slightly in limbo. I knew I wanted a second child, so I knew that there would be another natural break in what I was doing. And um, but also the the project itself was slightly in limbo because um, we'd submitted one planning application. We knew that we had to do quite a lot of work and actually resubmit that. And that was a process we were going through with Camden Council. And so it was it all felt a little bit kind of like everything was on hold. So you know, my kind of from a personal point of view, it was on hold, but equally from a project point of view, it was on hold. So that's a kind of strange, strange period. I mean, professionally or project wise, we used it as a time to consolidate, to think about how we might move forward. And you know, from a personal perspective, I was just learning to manage work and child. So it, it's, that was definitely a period of, I think, probably stagnation is the best word for it. Then I had my second child and 
come, when I came back to work after that, from a personal perspective, I was very much of the mindset of, well, yes, I need to learn now how to deal with two children and a job. But also from a project perspective, I the project had the second application was going through. And so it's very much all systems go. So very much whether it's deliberate or it's just how it, it turned out, um, my kind of personal journey very much mirrored the project journey of the time. And that, that period after I'd come back, um, having had my final, my second second child, is probably the time then that I learned to, quite frankly, get on with stuff. And um, we did some absolutely great projects. I was um, running the, the, the building for Camden Council, which was, um, which was a great experience. I also picked up the infrastructure there, largely because nobody else wanted to do it. Um, and that's something that's that stuck with me for um, for the rest of the rest of my career so far. But it was also around that time that I became really aware that whilst the time at Argent had been amazing, it was also becoming a little bit repetitive. And all of the discussions we'd had internally, I I sort of knew the arguments that we were going to go through on every project before we got there. And so I guess to a certain extent, I was. I was coming to the realisation that I was going to need to move again. And how easy was that? How easy was that to, to reach? Um, it was actually phenomenally difficult. Um, I mean, I, I kind of feel to a certain extent that I grew up at Argent. Um, and so it was, you know, whilst you know, Argent is not always the easiest place to work, um, it can be very full on, or it certainly could at the time. Um, you know, the people I'd worked with, I'd worked with for a really long time, so they're my friends. Um, and to an extent, um, I had been there so long that I wasn't even sure I could function, particularly outside Argent. Um, I was very aware that other companies had very different cultures. And so, again, it felt quite brave and almost a little bit like, you know, breaking up a relationship to leave Argent, which sounds slightly dramatic when I say it, but it, it was how I felt at the time, you know, somewhere I'd been a long time, I'd, I'd spent a long time there um, and I had a real connection. But equally, I knew that to to progress and develop, it was, I, I did need to move on and I needed to make that break and I needed to go and do something different. Now, I, I'd say there's, there's probably a recurring theme in the, in the people who I'm lucky enough to, to interview, uh, and that is they, when presented at a junction, a career junction, they will often take what most people appear, you know, think is the, the riskier or, or certainly more sort of difficult sort of path. And in my research, it was interesting. One of the members um, of the team around that time said, well, I recognised why Claire was leaving, but I think it surprised an awful lot of people at Argent. Why do you think that? Why do you think they might say that? What what was it about that that you think that, that might have come as a surprise to many? I suspect. I mean, I was very established at Argent. It was it was quite a comfortable role by that point. I was well respected. I could I could I could get things done and make things happen. And so certainly the easy route would have been to stay at Argent. And I think bearing in mind I moved to Battersea. Um, power station, which was quite a different project and was recognised. The team was quite different. The dynamic within the company was quite different. Um, I think people um, saw that as a, 
a slightly strange move. So I would imagine that those things put together, I, and people probably would also have been aware that, I mean, I still had two young children at the time. And so, you know, any, anybody with children know that it's, it can be quite hard to manage a, a career and um, and young children at the same time. So, so no, it, it definitely wasn't the easy choice. Well, you've given us a tease, haven't you, in terms of what that choice becomes. Tell us a bit more about sort of what you decided to go and do. Yeah, so I um, I took a role at um, at Battersea Power Station, and it was it was a role that was leading the work on sustainability and infrastructure. So it was a very specific role, and what really interested me there was was partly the challenge of of going outside that comfort zone of Argent, working uh, again with some you know really great people on a a project which had quite a different. I suppose quite a different position in the market, clearly, um, and the way it had been set up. And yeah, I, th- I think the challenge of just working somewhere else um, was was really what drew me drew me to the, to, to that project. What I, I'm curious because I, I think there's there's a, there's a lot of similarities between what King's Cross was doing and what Bassey was doing in the sense of its scale and and all and and also in terms of it, probably it's about sort of both will, will no doubt be sort of um, being studied right now and continue to be sort of studies as as these two absolute Goliath sort of projects going on what were the differences yeah I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about what the differences are and there, there are clear differences in the projects King's Cross was very much about filling a, a a space within central London. And um, Battersea is very much about creating a completely new, a new place for people to go, um, you know, completely different from, from its surroundings. Um, but I think for me, what was the most, or, or, or the, the clearest difference was actually in, in how the companies and how the teams worked. So King's Cross, as I've already said, was an incredibly intense um working environment and project supportive um, but also very outward looking and I think what I found at Battersea was that it was similarly intense but the focus was very much um, inward and, and internal looking. It What it did do was give me a, a really fresh insight into the role of um, uh, into how these big projects are set up. At King's Cross we we're really really lucky and the seed funding was all from the British Telecom Pension Scheme and they kind of sat quietly behind um, and were fairly comfortable with whatever we did. Whereas um, at Battersea Power Station, um, the um, investors funding behind it were much more actively involved, um, which brought both challenges, but also a really interesting different perspective um, from, from Malaysia. And and so that was probably my first first consideration of, of how different different cultures might approach regeneration which uh, which again it's a huge learning curve now i'd like to just bring in something that we've sort of uncovered during our research so i suppose two people who know who know you quite well uh, and if i compare them alongside so that their comments there's, there are def- there's three common trends there um, all, both spoke about your modesty spoke about a claire who was very straightforward and also of a real sort of collaborative approach now i, I I'll, I won't mention too much about sort of about modesty, but straightforward. Now, the, in, when I dug into this, it was the talk about sort of Claire often had no hidden agendas. She built real trust with uh, with her subordinates. 
Now, maybe call me the skeptic, but I read, <laughs> maybe I read too much into this. And I thought maybe that means that Claire doesn't enjoy office politics. Or maybe, you know, and maybe that can, maybe that could be a problem in terms of, in terms of uh, the career, if that, if that's a necessity. Has it, am I reading too much into that? Or, or is, is that, a, is that, has that happened? Has that, ever, has that ever sort of been an issue? Um, that's an interesting question. I acknowledge office politics are inevitable. Um, I suppose in the end, I tend to be pretty goal focused. I, uh, f- funnily enough, I, I was reminded earlier um, this week even of um, one of these dreadful leadership things you tend to go to. And there was one in particular where there was a talk given by uh, by the Olympic gold medal winning rowing or one of the rowing crews i think it's from 2012 actually and they gave this talk on uh, effectively leadership and um, and and achieving your goals and they managed to drag this out into you know a good two-hour talk but the essence of it was every single thing they did they they applied this mantra of does it make the boat go faster Um, and i actually used this earlier this week and and I think that's probably that that does resonate with me is there are certain things I want to do. I want to get things done. Um, I said right at the beginning, you know, my one of the reasons for going into engineering originally was because I like doing things um, and applying this this kind of question of does does what I'm doing now help me achieve the end goal for that project? And so I don't find office politics often um, helps with that. Sometimes it does, um, and sometimes you have to you have to play that game. Um, but no, I tend to be I, I do tend to be quite straightforward. I tend to be quite clear about what it is I'm trying to achieve, and it's not always successful, but it, it has a fair success rate. Um, I, I don't I think you know the way of getting people involved in something and also wanting to achieve what, what you want to achieve is to get them bought into those principles so so yes I, I probably am quite straightforward I don't deliberately choose to engage in office politics um, but um, but I do accept it's necessary sometimes well sort of give uh, sort of uh, you know we're yet we to reach sort of the the pinnacle of your career yet but it certainly hasn't hold you back yet has it um back back on sort of the on the career 13 years at Argent and within in that, as you rightly said, there's been sort of there were three sort of um, periods of, of growth. We've talked about sort of Battersea now and sort of what you what you were learning in particular and what what they were exposing you to, but a much shorter shorter stint in terms of the in terms of the employment. What was it that caused then the change, or what was it maybe that affected that uh, that growth acceleration for you? Yeah, so I I talked a little bit about um, Battersea being quite inward looking. And it was one of the things I was really conscious of that I felt I'd lost touch with um, the kind of wider development industry over in Battersea. I mean, it, it being in a project office is amazing because every single person there is is trying to do the same thing and working on the same project. But it also, um, it, you have to work quite hard to go and look at what else is out there and kind of get yourself back into that um in, into the wider market of London, UK, or, or the world, um, or certainly that was that was my experience. And so I was approached by um, a recruiter actually that I'd known for a really long time, 
they've got a lot to blame yes exactly exactly um and uh, he had he was aware that lendlease were looking for somebody um to look at infrastructure which is obviously what i was doing at, at battersea and he introduced the idea with this um they were trying they were trying to be quite forward thinking um at the time lendlease was quite small in the uk was only really known for doing iql over at stratford and they they had this idea that they were going to um they had both a construction arm and a development arm um, they're going to put a construction person in development and a development person in construction to try and link the two up. And I, I was just really interested um, in that idea. Uh, the pro- some of the projects looked really interesting. But I do remember, I, I remember actually I said no to the first interview on the grounds that why on earth would I want to work for a contractor, um, which was kind of how Lendlease was positioned. Um, obviously completely different now. But um, I did go and have have a coffee at Waterloo Station. And then yes, ended up joining and and spent um, pretty much five years um, working at working at Lendlease um, on all sorts of projects, um, and very much through the period where there's a huge amount of work winning. Um, and I went from um, working um, entirely on London-based projects to suddenly having um, projects that I was involved with uh, superficially in some ways, but um, you know almost across the globe, and suddenly having that that global perspective um, on regeneration projects, um, I, I just found absolutely fascinating um, because all of the assumptions that we, that we or I, I had learned um, up to that point about regeneration, I realised were all really, really London-based. And actually regeneration in different places, it sounds really obvious, but you know, it means different things and you're dealing with different problems. I always joke that the uh, regeneration in in um, in Australia tends not to be regeneration, but actually generation. But um, yeah, it, many challenges, but that they are just really different. And so it was a really good lesson in simply uh, you know challenging all the assumptions that that um, that I had had already built up. Uh, I love that regeneration versus generation. I think that was a fascinating way of looking at it. Um... It still comes back to building communities, um, and that's. It, you know, fundamentally, what what is at the heart of I, I think of of of, um, of what I do, but um, yeah, it is very different if you've got if you're working with a place that's already got an established community, or you're working somewhere where in some cases you are genuinely creating somewhere entirely new, and and how do you do that and and build on what's there and make it feel authentic, um, and uh, yeah, it was absolutely fascinating, um, and I was incredibly lucky. And to, to have the opportunity to, to to have that experience. So, Claire, yeah, we mentioned it in the intro, didn't we? But up until this point, you've you've worked now for three incredible sort of projects and three very distinct major players, particularly within in sort of London development. But I suspect each three has been qu- quite unique in terms of its setup and its its outlook. How have you managed to adapt to succeed in those in those three businesses? That's a very good question. Um, I'm probably quite a, a slow starter in a lot of the organisations. I, I do have a tendency to go in and I guess fact find. Um, and I'm very much about gradually finding my feet, understanding the project, but also understanding the people. And yeah, we, we talked about office politics earlier, but you, you do have to understand how, how the office politics does work. 
you know, how, how each of the different sections of a business might work together. And so I probably go in, I do listen a lot and, and then gradually start to form, I guess, a position um, on what it is that I want to achieve. I think also one of the things I'm very aware of is I tend to I I I do tend to adapt my character slightly. So, for example, at Argent Argent was you know very forthright. There, there was you know lots of animated discussion, and so my role there was not or the role I gave myself was not to be part necessarily of all of that animated discussion, but to t- try and take a slightly balanced view. If I um, have, then moving on to um, to Battersea, again, I, I was there taking a, a you know a very practical viewpoint of actually there are these amazing buildings going up, but we need to get the basics right, and so that was the gap I was trying to fill. And then at Lendlease, interestingly, at the time the gap really was um, there, there was loads of expertise in delivery um, and that kind of practical side. But one of the areas that was missing was very much around placemaking and community building. And so there I took what I'd learned at Argent and adapted it for, um, for, 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 for the gap that I perceived within Lendlease at the time. Um, and so I, I, I guess that's, um, that, that probably is my approach is that listening, um, that listening period at the beginning helps me then understand the role where I can slot in and actually make a difference. Well, that's a, that's a really nice sort of segue there about sort of talking about sort of slotting in. But at this point of your career, your responsibility was not simply to slot in, was it? it you're, now, you're now seen as a leader, aren't you, within, um, within your sort of role? Yeah, absolutely. How have you managed to think to, because again, sort of, you know, combining sort of things we've learned so far is that, again, going back to those common sort of traits of what people describe you, you know, the, the third one was about collaboration. And, and, Claire, and Claire is great at getting teams pulling together. So there must be something, you know, you, that doesn't happen just because uh, Claire slots in really easily. You know, what were you doing in order to make to make sure these these teams are working so cohesively? I think it, it is part of the same process, actually. I think it's about understanding what needs to be done, and that which comes back to that gap, and being really, really clear on what it is that needs to be done in order to I guess fill that gap or achieve whatever it is that needs to be achieved. Uh, and I think one of the one of the things I do quite well, which is very hard to say because um, you referred to modesty earlier, um, but one of the things I do do quite well is explain things clearly and set out those objectives w- with a degree of clarity, um, which then helps people get behind them and you know, sets a clear goal for us to achieve. Hopefully, it is an achievable goal. But it gives people an ability to to get behind that. Uh, I think the other things I am I, I think creating an environment in which people safe feel safe to express ideas, no matter how mad they might be, um, which again was something I learned. I remember on um, delivering the building for Camden back at Argent, there were all sorts of challenges with that. We we were trying to achieve the highest ever Brianna score, for example, but it required everybody to kind of throw the mad mad ideas on the table, and having learned from that, creating that safe environment for people to go and explore, to try things, and come back. And if they didn't work, then 
it's fine. You know, we can all pick up the pieces and we can move on, but you have to try some of those things sometimes. Now we're getting to the the, the point whereby as you know, I keep mentioning these these three sort of um, biggest sort of, um, names in development, three major projects. But we're sort of heading heading, I think, toward, towards which is the next step in that in that career, which once more is another major project, but is a developer with a bit of a difference. So do you want to introduce sort of London Legacy for us? Yeah, so um so having left Lendlease, I I took the opportunity to join London uh, London Legacy Development Corporation, which is obviously delivering the legacy for the Olympic Park. So a, a bit of a change for me because it's it's my absolute first foray into public sector although um, I have to say one of my team when I was at Lendley's said it wasn't really proper public sector it was the very much the posh end of public sector which I obviously have nothing to compare it to so I, I can't be quite sure about that but it is a different role it is working effectively within the GLA body and it is also not really quite a developer it's more of a landowner role and so uh, having now reflected on it as we've been talking um, I guess I probably did the same thing of being of going in understanding exactly what that meant before I could then kind of move forward and start to um, start to I, I suppose deliver things so um, so yes yeah, so it's an absolutely enormous project and um, for me what is fascinating is that it is is the cycles of transition it will go through and it's a project that's been around for years and years and um, almost everybody in the industry I think has worked on on the Olympic Park at some point uh, and obviously it had this huge moment in 2012 at the moment we're I mean t- this year is the 10th anniversary year but actually what's really exciting I think is that probably the biggest transition for the project is still to come we've got East Bank opening over the next next few years and um, creating a, a, a cultural quarter. At the moment, we're just finishing off the first of the residential schemes. But again, that, that kind of almost just scratches the surface of the number of people who are actually going to live on the park. And, and again, I think it's, it's coming back to, I think what's a, a slightly new fascination for me is how these projects evolve over time. Um, and as you say, all of the projects I've been involved in are extremely long both in the gestation but also in the delivery and the amount of change that happens just in the world while these projects are going on is is just phenomenal and that rate of change is just speeding up Um, and how we keep the projects relevant and and fresh is it is actually I think one of the inordinate challenges it's it's not something that you, you don't have a plan on day one and then just deliver your way through that plan until the end it has to be an evolution simply because everything changes around you while you're working through it. So, so yes, yeah, so um, the Olympic Park is an extraordinary place. It's, it's been surprisingly busy, I suppose not terribly surprisingly. It's provided a lot of um, respite, I think, for people over the last, um, last couple of years. And there is yet a huge amount to come. Well, that's really exciting stuff. Really exciting stuff. Um, so we're getting to the point now, uh, sort of in the pub, where we get a chance now. We've been looking sort of backwards all this all this time. I want to start sort of looking looking forwards. Um, what's next for Claire? What, you, what have you next want to achieve? You talked about sort of being very goal orientated. What's what's next for you? Yeah, well, this is probably where I'm slightly less goal orientated, actually. 
I, I think to date, what I've worked out is what I like doing. And I like variety. Um, I really like challenge. Uh, you can probably tell from my CV, I like to do the difficult things. And as we've talked about, I, I really, I really do like to make things happen. What I will say is my career has definitely not been a kind of linear planned path. I can't imagine that that's suddenly going to spring into action. And so I do tend to be quite <laughs> opportunistic. But, but what I am clear about is that whatever it does, it needs to be big. It needs to be challenging um, and it needs to have a really clear purpose. And, you know, th- th- in the end, and that's what probably gets me out of bed in the morning is, is being really clear about what it is I need to do that day. You know, what, at the end of this, what is it going to look like? Um, so, yeah, so that, that's it's not a very uh, it's probably not a very good answer to that question of what it actually is I want to do. Um, what I do, what it is I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> Again, coming back to that point about the di- the different employers you've you've had, um, has your attitude to success changed over time? Yeah, yeah, it, it has. Um, it has changed massively, uh, and actually recognizing that, that that previous answer, recognizing that what I want to do next, I'm probably relatively relaxed about as long as it's got the variety and the challenge and it actually has a purpose. It, it is part of that. So I, I suppose I was like many people and I was looking for title and money and, you know, all of those things that we conventionally measure success by. And I think probably over the years, I, I, I've, I've come to the realisation that that might be how that might be a way of measuring success but actually for me if it isn't a meaningful role and if it isn't if it isn't something I actually feel is worthwhile then that for me isn't success and so so yes very very much I've I have changed what it is I I rate these things by. Well Claire it's now unfortunately we've got got to sort of start to pull this to a um, to a close Um, but I found it absolutely fascinating sort of uh, how that how your career has developed sort of the active sort of part you've you've played in that and and know that's making some pretty sort of tough decisions but um, thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much Nick Um, it has been a pleasure and also quite a luxury of, of being able to be so reflective for an hour or so so thank you very much for the opportunity. Oh you are more than welcome thank you very much. The Urban Land Institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world, with more than 45,000 global members. The ULI's ethos of personal development makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast, and we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join, quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.